Okay now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times with another Wednesday Night Wars edition, yes, of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back to talk all things NXT and AEW Dynamite coming out of another extremely solid Wednesday of professional wrestling action on your television and we have plenty to get to today as AEW continues building towards its Revolution pay-per-view next week and NXT is setting up a number of major title matches over the next few weeks on its air. The Silver King is going to be here today breaking down all of that and more across both brands as we wrap up another packed week of wrestling podcasting on your favorite show that takes you between the ropes. Getting Over started out the week on Sunday with instant analysis of WWE Elimination Chamber. We came back Tuesday with a WWE recap episode talking about everything else that happened on SmackDown and the Raw after Elimination Chamber as WWE continues on its road to WrestleMania 37. But today we are focused on NXT and AEW and slightly looking ahead to next week where in the same spot we will have an ultimate preview for AEW Revolution and we'll come back Sunday after that pay-per-view goes off the air with instant analysis of AEW Revolution next Sunday. And in between all of those we'll have a WWE episode as well. So there's plenty to come here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast but I'm here to focus on today the now. And what I want you to do right now is head on over to Twitter, give us a follow at Getting Overcast. That is where we release episodes of the show. We tweet about wrestling all week long, and it is the place where you can send in DMs and tweets to ask questions that will appear on this show. Also, don't forget to check out Apple Podcasts so you can leave us a five-star rating and review to let everyone who visits our show page know how much you love the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Also, please do not forget to tell your friends and family, tell people on Reddit, on Twitter, whoever you know that's a wrestling fan, let them in on the greatness that is the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. I would greatly appreciate it. Our goal in 2021 is to double our audience. Not grow slightly, double our audience. We want to have a massive 2021. We're two months in and so far, so good. With all of that out of the way, it's time to talk about the wrestling. And we're going to start, as we usually do on Wednesdays, with NXT. NXT was a very interesting show because almost every episode of NXT historically, and AEW for that matter, really both Wednesday night shows, the main event is a wrestling match. That was not the case this week. Instead, NXT promoted all show that Adam Cole was finally going to speak out and explain his actions from the prior couple of weeks where he attacked Kyle O'Reilly and technically, I guess, Finn Balor as well. So in the main event of the show, that's where we're going to start. Cole came out with, uh, I think it was at 10 p.m. So there was about eight minutes left and uh, USA Network did allow NXT to go until 10.08. Earlier uh, in the show, it was announced that Kyle O'Reilly would be sidelined four to six weeks, which takes us to the week of WrestleMania. So that is pretty interesting, at least from a timeline perspective. You would assume he'll be back more in that four to five week range for storytelling purposes. But you do wonder, 
how far Adam Cole can go between now and then. And we'll get to that in a moment. Cole, when he came out, hit the ring, said he hated that O'Reilly, kept getting opportunities and failing, but it didn't excuse his actions. He was ashamed of himself, hates himself. Cole apologized and said he'll do whatever he can to fix their relationship. Roderick Strong came out, said Cole kept him in the dark and ruined Undisputed Era because it was built on trust. Strong said he won't be able to save Cole from what O'Reilly is going to do to him. Finn Balor then ran down without his title, pushed Strong out of the way and attacked Cole. Strong hesitated for a minute, but eventually pulled Balor off. Cole super kicked Balor, then Strong clotheslined Cole as Cole apologized again and said he wanted things to go back to normal between all of them. Cole cried, Strong bent down to say that they're brothers and he tried to lift him up while saying he loved him. They hugged while on their knees. Cole kept apologizing, but when Strong went to stand, Cole hit him with that low blow, called him stupid, ripped the Undisputed Era dog tag off Strong's neck and super kicked him once more. So it was an interesting turn of events to end the show and we'll get into everything that happened, kind of what it meant in a moment. First, a DM slide from Atish Tawari at Atish911. He said, tell me I'm wrong, but it seems like they're building towards a triple threat for WrestleMania weekend, maybe at a takeover. Kyle O'Reilly, Finn Balor, and Adam Cole with Kyle O'Reilly going over. And Atish, I will say that does, to me at least, appear to be the booking. My guess is while O'Reilly is injured and Cole is clearly still bent on attacking Balor, we'll get Balor-Cole once again for the NXT Championship as a TV match. That will be when Kyle O'Reilly returns, possibly near the end of the match to cost Cole the title. And then they end up going into a triple threat scenario. I do want to see how this plays out over the next couple of weeks. You would assume that Strong's going to get involved and have a match with Cole at some point. There's really just not too much to analyze about this other than to say that the main event was well done. The Full Sail crowd was missed here in a massive way because they really would have brutalized Cole with heel chance. O'Reilly winning the title in the triple threat, if they go that direction without pinning Balor, is a good way to eventually get it back on cross in a few months without Balor suffering a loss. But they do that a lot. I mean, they took the title off Flair without, you know, Flair getting pinned when Io Shirai beat Rhea Ripley, again beating Rhea Ripley. So how many times do you want to keep beating Adam Cole is going to be the question. And what does Adam Cole do once O'Reilly does have the title? What do they do with Roderick Strong? What happens to Undisputed Era as a whole, a faction that has largely dominated NXT for the better part of, I guess, three years, right? You, It feels weird not to have them when what we had been anticipating for such a long time was Undisputed Era getting called up to the main roster. Maybe this is a scenario where they want to call Cole up, maybe after WrestleMania, but O'Reilly and Strong, they want to keep there. And if that's the case, then I can maybe understand this going in that direction. But it it is strange for them to have broken up Undisputed Era when they probably should have expanded it once Bobby Fish got hurt and figured out other guys to pull in. and, And the group clearly needed a new direction, but I don't know that breaking it up was that direction. I think expanding it and changing the composition of it, such as when Shawn Michaels basically had to retire or leave the company and Triple H had to reformulate Degeneration X. 
that's probably more of the direction I'd have gone in with Undisputed Era. And maybe they still will. Adam Cole uh, walking up the ramp and then later on Twitter, he said, I am and always have been Undisputed Era, not the other guys. So maybe Cole will end up doing that. Maybe he'll go to the main roster and create a new Undisputed Era. That's possible too. But it's just very difficult to kind of analyze this so early in the storyline. Other than to say I'm intrigued, I was a little disappointed initially that they were going back to Balor and Cole, considering they were the ones that battled for the title in the first place after Cross had to relinquish it. And Balor's only had a couple of feuds and now they're right back to it. So I kind of hoped that they'd go in a different direction there. But hey, it's intriguing. O'Reilly Cole is something we've always wanted and we've always needed. So the fact that we may get that inside of the next two months is extremely exciting. Now, the actual main event match on NXT was Santos Escobar against Karrion Cross in that no disqualification match. Legado del Fantasma showed up 90 minutes into the show in a black Escalade. Cross's music after the commercial break hit, but instead of going to the ring, he wound up outside in the parking lot, taking out Fantasma and brawling with Escobar. Escobar locked himself in the cabin of a truck and Cross went after it with a pickaxe. Fantasma ganged up on him and dominated for a while outside. But once they got into the Capitol Wrestling Center, Cross took Wilde and Mendoza and threw them violently through the hockey glass. Escobar wrapped a chair around Cross's arm and drove it into the ring post. Cross countered three amigos with multiple release overhead suplexes. Wilde saved Escobar from a concerto into the steel steps. Escobar killed Wilde and Mendoza again outside the ring. He then cytosuplexed Escobar through the announce table and again in the ring and finished with the forearm to the back of the head for the expected win. So the result was no surprise. The match was a bit slow because brawling is not really Escobar's forte, but it made Cross look so good. It may have been the best match of his NXT career to this point, actually. And you know what? I don't even need to qualify it. It was the best match of Karrion Cross's NXT career to this point. I do think he needs a different finisher than this forearm to the back of the head. It is rough to set up because you need a guy to stand up and stumble to his feet with his back turned to his opponent, which is not something that wrestlers normally do. They're they're aware of their space. So I do think that's strange. And, you know, the Saito suplex is a pretty strong signature move. Uh, the straight jacket's a good finisher. But I just feel like he needs, he's such a big, strong guy. He needs something so much more dominant just a forearm to the back of the head. It doesn't really work for me, at least, as a finisher. It could be a move as part of the match. That would be okay, but you got to go in a different direction. That said, Cross is better as this hitman-type brawler than a demonic wrestler, but I do think some combination of it can work. And ironically, over the weekend, I was watching that APA documentary. I think it was WWE Untold on the WWE Network. And I just kept thinking that an APA-like gimmick would really work for Cross. He has a lot of personality. You guys heard the interview I did with him on this podcast. You can check the archives. It's a great interview. He has a lot of personality to him. He can laugh. He can make jokes. He seems like a badass in real life, but that he was almost playing himself up being carrying Cross, this demonic guy with scarlet dressed in black leather with spikes coming out of her head and the tarot cards. I think you can use portions of that, just like the APA was a transition from the Acolytes into the Acolyte Protection Agency. I think you can do something similar with Cross and it would work really well. So I do hope they go a little bit more in that direction and look at this as an opportunity to revisit 
and reformulate his character rather than just now that he's done with the street fight, kind of go back into what they were doing with him previously. That's at least my hope. Escobar here was not gonna beat him one-on-one. So Legado del Fantasma being effective was really good booking now that they're past this feud. Escobar was tweeting that, hey, yeah, I lost the match, but I didn't get my ass kicked. You know, we went head to head. And Escobar being able to fight that way with Cross does give him plenty of credence to move out of the cruiserweight division and now move into the main card or the main event picture in NXT. Or honestly, you could take all of Legado del Fantasma and bump them right up to the main roster. They are 100% ready. The question is, what do you do with these guys after this feud? I do wonder what's next for Escobar and the group considering he still has the cruiserweight title. He's gonna have to drop that. And the other guys, Wilde and Mendoza, they haven't really contended for the tag team titles despite being in and around the picture. So I am curious what they do next. You guys know I love Legato del Fantasma. This was entertaining. It was good. I would actually say it exceeded expectations because my expectations were actually pretty low for the fight. So all things considered, the two main events were really strong on NXT. Let's move over to the top women's storyline involving Io Shirai. Shirai fought Zoe Stark on the show. Production screwed up and accidentally cut off Stark's promo, which seemed like it was going strong. And that was that's a pretty big disappointment. And that kind of sucks, considering that was really her first time to speak in front of the TV audience. But it was a huge step up for Stark to go from Valentina Feroz last week to Io Shirai, maybe the greatest women's wrestler in the world right now, this week. Stark got in a lot of offense. She folded Shirai with a released German suplex. Shirai came back with a Tiger Fate kick and missile drop kick for a long two. Stark ate a Hurricanrana and double underhook backbreaker for another near fall. Shirai eventually hit a Meteora and over the moonsault for the win. They shook hands after. Between Shirai selling and the terrific job that everyone on commentary did, Stark was basically made after one match. I mean, she had the match with Feroz. She had the match in the Women's Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic. That was her debut. But she became a contender in one match Wednesday night against Io Shirai. And Shirai deserves a lot of credit. Stark obviously does. But Wade Barrett, Beth Phoenix, and Vic Joseph do as well. They really stuck up for her the entire match and sold her as a legitimate threat. So after that match, Tony Storm came out. She trashed Shirai for not responding to her attack last week. Storm said Shirai can't beat her. And the champion basically said, let's go anytime, anywhere. Storm dared her to find William Regal and make a match happen. This is one of two huge women's matches that can be booked right now in NXT. To me, it's the biggest. Uh, The other, of course, is Raquel Gonzalez. I can't wait for it. I did think they were going to save it for a takeover or a special NXT TV show. Maybe WrestleMania week, they would do it on Wednesday, but they're not doing that. They're gonna do it in two weeks. I believe that's March 10th. I think that's a mistake. This is a match that should be built up. This is a match where there should be a title change. And look, if it's in the main event of TV and it gets 25 minutes, then no sweat, like go do your thing, that's fine. But this to me is a takeover match and I do think it's a little strange. They're kind of just throwing it out there on TV. Uh, Johnny Gargano faced Dexter Loomis in the opener to the show. Austin Theory was all confused during the way's entrance. Indy Hartwell flirted with and swooned over Loomis during the match. Loomis hit a bunch of suplexes and a spine buster for a near fall. Theory hesitated and didn't use a chair on Loomis when Gargano had the referee distracted late in the match. So Loomis tossed Gargano into Theory and locked in silence for the win in the non-title match. This was a 15-minute match, but it was really much, much, much more storytelling 
than it was wrestling. There were so many pauses that it was kind of tough to get into it, but I did appreciate the storytelling. Later in the show, Gargano criticized Theory for not using the chair while they were all backstage being interviewed. Theory said using the chair wasn't necessary. It was over the top. Gargano basically said he'd been brainwashed and is not thinking clearly. Indy Hartwell then said she thought Loomis was hot. Gargano freaked out and so did Candice LeRae and said Theory is going to have to go to therapy to fix his Stockholm syndrome. I've said this every single week I talk about the way. They have so much personality. I think they're my favorite faction right now in all of wrestling just because they're truly funny. And Gargano is just absolutely murdering this role that he has. But because of that personality and because of that comedy, I do think they're going to work very, very well with Dexter Loomis, who kind of needs someone to carry a feud on the other end. So for me, as it has been, the way Johnny Gargano, Austin Theory, Indy Hartwell, Candice LeRae. Such good shit. It really is such good shit. MSK was featured with a short video recounting their Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic win, their journey to WWE, and why the victory meant so much to them. It was fantastic, and honestly, it was a little emotional. So they did a really good job. They were then attacked from behind by grizzled young veterans at the start of a backstage promo with the veterans later announcing Wesley broke his hand and that they, the grizzled young veterans, were fined because of that from William Regal. Uh, The GYV then faced Drake Maverick and Killian Dane in a tag team match. They called Dane and Maverick out as Shrek and Donkey, which I can swear, maybe I'm wrong. You guys tell me you're the ones who listen to the show. I think I said that on this podcast, like, two months ago when they first teamed up, that they reminded me of Shrek and Donkey and it was a really funny, good pairing because of that. So tell me if I'm right about that. I'm pretty sure I am. Uh, Dane showcased his power, taking out GYV two to one. But when Maverick tagged in, they hit Ticket of Mayhem to end the match. Dane carried Maverick backstage when suddenly Alexander Wolf, who is now part of Imperium, criticized him saying, what happened to you? You used to be a monster. Obviously, that dates back to their time together in Sanity, which is a great reference. I don't want Dane to turn. I really want this tag team to stay together. I don't think there's any harm or thought in Dane joining Imperium, so I'm not really worried about that. But I do think we'll ultimately get Dane and Maverick against two of the guys in Imperium, and that'll be the tag team match. You know, it's a storyline that's totally fine to go that way, and I do like the callback to Sanity. But at some point, I kind of want Dane and Maverick to start winning. And right now, I don't know when that's going to be. MSK feuding with the veterans, to me, makes more sense than Oni Lorcan and Danny Birch. So it feels like NXT may go and do a double change here, considering MSK had a tag team title match scheduled for next week, but now won't be competing in it, which also really takes down next week's show. I mean, they had two tag team title matches. They promoted that last week, and now they pulled one of them. I like the women's tag team titles, but it's Nia Jax and Shayna Baszler coming down. It's not really a strong booking where MSK, you're tuning in, you're thinking they're going to win the tag team titles if they're fighting Oni Lurkin and Danny Burch. So I do think it's possible that they do a double change. I'm not sure I agree with this booking because NXT really needs to strike while the iron is hot with MSK. I'd much rather MSK win the titles, hold them for two months and drop them to the Grizzled Young Veterans and have to go on a big run to try to win them back two or three months down the line, then hold off MSK winning the titles initially. I just think that's a mistake. You don't want to cool them down. Taking them out for a couple weeks 
or at least having Wesley at ringside while Nash Carter is actually wrestling. It just, it, it takes down the excitement that we had. You could have them fight all those tag teams they didn't get a chance to fight in the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic over the next few weeks if you wanted to do something like that. But I just didn't like that they announced the tag team match and then pulled it one week later. And now we don't know when it's going to be. And you just kind of wonder, well, what are only Lorcan and Danny Burch even doing right now? Because Dunn's no longer feuding with Balor, so that means they're not feuding with them. Undisputed Era's broken up. So the tag team champions have nothing to do. So you might as well have them lose the titles. That's kind of how I look at it. Uh, Tyler Rust and Leon Ruff was a scheduled match. Malcolm Bivens hysterically popped up from a hiding spot in the trainer's room to challenge Ruff to a match on behalf of Rust. As Ruff made his entrance, Swerve attacked him, hit a released Death Valley driver onto the ring apron, really cool move, and said he's the one who deserves opportunities. Bivens raised Rust's arm without the match even starting. All this was good. I still kind of want to see Swerve move on from Leon Ruff and do more things, but hey, let's at least get him a win in a feud and we'll go from there. Let's build on that. But I want to see Swerve. Bronson Reed, he like keeps coming back then he disappears for two or three weeks. We haven't, we didn't see Bronson Reed. So this mid-card picture right now, I know they're going with Gargano and Loomis, but these other guys need to be wrestling and real matches and, and kind of staking claim to a number one contendership. That's what needs to be happening right now. Cameron Grimes was watching the classic Ted DiBiase video where he tells a kid to dribble a basketball 10 times on stage at a WWE show uh, for hundred bucks, I think it was, but kicks the ball out of his hands at the end. So Grimes challenged a guy backstage to do it, but forgot to kick the ball because he didn't watch the end of the clip and then flipped out. Grimes tried again later with a woman uh, who stood up and ended up being about five inches taller than him. She ended up being former WNBA player. They didn't name her, but it was Enriel Howard of the Seattle Storm. She also played for Texas A&M and Mississippi State. She dribbled the ball around her back between her legs and then Grimes started cursing out Ted DiBiase, basically for giving him the idea. Grimes finally did it a third time and this time when the guy dribbled once, he just punched him in the face and Grimes threw the money at him and was just kind of acting a fool a little bit. So Grimes being this hillbilly idiot, GameStop millionaire, it's really good. I want them to lean into that a little bit more but the call back to Ted DiBiase, you're always going to pop me with that. And it was pretty solid the way they did it throughout the show with him screwing it up and then realizing at the end, I'm not going to get it right. So let me just beat the hell out of this guy. So pretty funny stuff. Zaylee against Casey Cantazaro was late in the show. It was actually a pretty good short match, but it came right after Shirai and Stark. And it's really impossible to follow that. They should not have booked this back to back. Casey got some offense and counters early. As both were outside, Zaylee stomped on Casey's knee as it was hanging off the second steel step. They made it look like her knee was totally crushed. Zaya dragged her back in the ring and referees just stopped the match. Caden Carter was irate. Boa cut her off from reaching the Tian Shaw leader. And that leader motioned for Zaya to basically end Casey. So she roundhouse kicked her to the face. I assume we're going to get Zaya and Caden next. But a serious injury angle is really curious for Casey, given she's clearly healthy. Like she wrestled that whole match. She's totally fine. Her and Caden were kind of just picking up some steam. And now she's on an injury angle with a crushed knee that could be like a month or a month and a half. I just think that's a strange decision, right? Maybe this will wind up being a write-off for the main roster. Like I was kind of hoping. We talked about them adding more women's tag teams to the main roster. I do think Casey is still a little too green for the main roster, but they are a legitimate team and they work well together. And I think giving Casey an opportunity 
to wrestle more seasoned women consistently would actually be good for her development. So, you know, we'll see what they end up doing, but, you know, clearly they're going to go with Caden and Zaya next, and, and that should be a good match. And lastly, LA Knight, this time wearing a red jacket and glasses. Why he changed from blue to red, I have no idea. Uh, cut another promo saying he will debut whenever he wants. He, he says in his promos what that means is a lot. Like he'll he'll be cutting his promo and say something like, I'm LA Knight and I'll debut whenever the hell I want. What that means is I'm in charge of the NXT division and everyone's looking up to me. He does it all the time. I'm just being honest. I have nothing against Eli Drake. I've never really seen him wrestle more than five matches and none of them offended me in any way. But this is the third straight promo that he's cut that did absolutely nothing for him. I maintain the name is horrendous. I don't even know what the gimmick is. He's supposed to be a pompous asshole. I mean, how many guys are pompous assholes? Like, that's not a new gimmick. We'll see if this improves once he gets into the ring, once he gets maybe longer promo time. But right now, these promos, the presentation of LA Knight, it's just not working for me. And I don't remember if I've given it this before, but I'm going to give it now. Zero point zero. So that wraps up NXT, a very solid show. Some questionable booking decisions. It seems like they may be rushing a couple things, which I know NXT has been accused of previously. What's really curious is they had this, you know, Vengeance Day takeover in mid-February. WrestleMania is April 10th and 11th. That is a two-month span. And right now we don't have any special TV shows or any takeover events announced. I think I speak for a lot of NXT fans and a lot of wrestling fans who say the back-to-back takeover on a Saturday, WrestleMania or Royal Rumble or SummerSlam on a Sunday were some of the most anticipated weekends that we had throughout our entire year watching wrestling. Even if you're primarily an AEW fan, knowing that you can get a takeover on a Saturday and then a big WWE event the following night, it excites you, right? Because you know everyone's going to be working top tier and trying really hard. And the pandemic changed things. And that's okay. Things have to adjust given the circumstances. But the loss of these takeovers, um, complementing big WWE events on weekends, I don't think it's diminished their quality any, but it's diminished my excitement for them in a little way. Like I loved the takeover WrestleMania back-to-back on the big weekend. And... We haven't gotten that. We didn't get it last year because they did a two-night WrestleMania. They're doing a two-night WrestleMania again this year, primarily because of capacity only being 25%. So they want to stretch those ticket sales over two nights. It makes sense when you have limited fans. But I really hope once they start doing shows with 75% capacity or how whatever percentage capacity, that NXT starts running these takeovers on Saturday because right now we don't have a special NXT event to look forward to. And if it's me, I take that Wednesday and I make it a two-hour commercial-free takeover on USA Network. You sell sponsorships around it, maybe some picture-in-picture stuff, but no full-time commercials. And you just go balls to the wall on USA and put over a great show. Three titles on the line, two other matches, and you just absolutely kick ass. Free takeover on cable TV. But if they don't do that, they got to do something. And with... SmackDown on Friday and the Hall of Fame ceremony on Thursday. I just don't know when they're going to do it. So 
it'll be interesting to see what the next big event is for NXT. There's plenty of major matches for them to do. But right now we're kind of playing a little bit of a waiting game. That is not the case for AEW, which is directly building towards one of its big tentpole pay-per-views, Revolution, coming in next Sunday on Bleacher Report Live, I believe, is where you can get it, and Fight TV as well. So let's move over to AEW Dynamite and all the AEW news that happened this week. So AEW, all day Wednesday, promoted that Paul White would be on Dynamite in the final half hour of the show. They said he would be on next week's episode. White signed with AEW as a part-time wrestler and color commentator for a new show, AEW Dark Elevation, which is another YouTube program they're going to air on Mondays at 7 p.m. right ahead of WWE Raw. The response was a mix, from what I could tell, of some people freaking out and others shrugging. And I was definitely in the latter category, even though I think Paul White's a really good signing for them. He's a great hire to do color commentary, but I have absolutely no interest seeing him wrestle. And I don't think he's some massive game-changing signing at age 50. What I am happy about is that he's back involved consistently in wrestling again without presumably us having to see him do a single punch knockout of people or appear in battle royals or Saudi Arabia greatest royal rumbles or events like that. I don't mind if this guy wants to go on dark and wrestle some green dudes and big guys and kind of teach them how to be big dudes. I think it's a great use of Paul White. And if you're going to have him do color commentary on Elevation, I think he has an opportunity to maybe be a little bit like a Gorilla Monsoon in that type of position. So I think it's a great hire, but is it game-changing? Am I freaking out about it? Do I think it deserves to be headline news? Not really. I think Sting was a big-time signing. You know, guys like that are are game-changers. Miro is and should have been a big-time signing. If AEW in a year from now or however long gets Aleister Black, Tommy End, I think that's a game-changing signing, right? Guys who can actually contribute weekly on television in the ring. Paul White, it's nice that they have a recognizable name there. He's going to be doing commentary with Tony Schiavone. But do I think it's earth-shattering? Do I think that YouTube show is suddenly outside? The the first episode will do great. But will do exceptional numbers because he's on commentary? No, ultimately it's Paul White. And maybe it's just me. Maybe I just wasn't that big of a fan and therefore I'm downplaying it. And you know what? I kind of felt the same way about Sting. I wasn't a huge fan of Sting. But at least with Sting, I recognize that he's a huge name and a lot of people pop for Sting. And I love that he gets people really excited. So let's move on to the main event of Dynamite, which was highly anticipated. It was for a spot in the ladder match at Revolution, Ray Phoenix against Lance Archer. They cut short promos against one another backstage early in the show, brawled a little bit. Phoenix did a flying senton off the stage over Jake Roberts into Archer. The man is just sick. Phoenix, I don't know how many times they need to say it. He's a top five wrestler in the world, and I'm not sure that there's four others better than him. I think any of the four that you may put in that list are equal to or slightly lesser than Ray Phoenix. The ability that he possesses in the ring and around the ring, it's just unmatched. Do I wish he sold a little bit more? Sure. Do I wish he didn't lose nearly as much as he does? Absolutely. But the talent, the in-ring ability, the inventiveness, I think it's unmatched in wrestling right now. Ray Phoenix is the man. And to be the man, you got to beat the man, which Lance Archer ultimately did on Wednesday night. 
Uh, Tony Schiavone was screaming halfway through the match with almost all of the action taking place outside the ring that it was a match of the year contender. That it was not, Tony. Uh, Total horseshit to say it at that juncture. Despite the match being good, and by the time the match was over, it certainly has an argument to be among, I don't know, the 10 or 15 best matches I've seen so far this year. So yes, it's in that category, more than a four-star match, fantastic. But at the time Tony said it, it was absolutely ridiculous. Phoenix did an awesome flying foot stomp to the back of Archer's head, and then a cool tightrope punt kick. He then did a springboard avalanche Spanish fly, but Archer came back with a choke slam and the blackout for the win, and then they fist bumped afterward. AEW was in a tough spot here because neither of these guys really should have taken the loss, but Archer probably needed the win a little bit more as a guy who is supposed to be big and dominant and just hasn't really dominated that much. But it was a total kick-ass match. What was great wasn't exactly the moves, those were awesome, but the pace of the match. It was non-stop action in a match with something on the line. No slowdowns except during, I think, one of the commercial breaks. There wasn't much story in the match other than the fact that they were going in as friends, but trying to see who would be best. But as I said, definitely a four-star match, probably 4.25. Tremendous, terrific, uh, fantastic. You choose the adjective. Love that main event. Very exciting. Definitely the best match of the night across both brands. Deserve a lot of credit, Ray Phoenix and Lance Archer. AEW opened with John Moxley against Ryan Nemeth. Moxley won quick with the paradigm shift. He sat backwards in a chair like the cool teacher and nailed an absolutely killer promo about the exploding barbed wire deathmatch being too attractive to a psychopath like him, even if it was entirely a trap from Kenny Omega. He had to take it. Maz said everyone will know by the end that he's given everything he has in him and it's a perfect way to go out if that's how his demise has to be. Easy promo of the year contender for Mox. Absolutely crushed it. I'd really have to go back and think what else I've said is a promo of the year contender. I know KO had one for sure, but man, this was just absolutely fantastic. He definitely set it up for us to expect him to get blown up and lose, perhaps with him taking a leave of absence, maybe paternity leave because Renee is pregnant and presumably gonna give birth in the next couple of months, but we just don't know. But that's the expectation. That's the setup that AEW has given us. So we'll see what actually happens a week and a half from now on Revolution. Later in the show, Kenny Omega was wearing a welding gimmick as he was building an explosive device or barbed wire contraption for their match. I'd really like to have seen more from the champion on the show and really the last couple of weeks outside of these skits, but it's okay. You know, they're, they're building the match. I assume we'll get plenty of Omega and Mox next week on AEW. Brian Cage and Ricky Starks defeated the Varsity Blondes. Griff Garrison had a great hot tag. The Brian Pillman Jr. came in for double team moves without even tagging in. Cage hit Pillman with a discus clothesline, and I think it was like a spike falcon arrow. Really cool move for the win. The lights went out, and Sting was driving a car, dragging a body bag with Darby Allen inside on a video that was on the screen. These videos just continue to be super strange to me. Uh, Sting then was seen dragging a body bag onto the stage, and Hook, Taz's son, was inside. Darby out of nowhere swung in from the rafters on a zip line with his skateboard and Team Taz basically just stood around waiting for him to unhook in order to attack him. Sting beat the shit out of Cage without any comeback from this guy who's a monster against like a 60-something-year-old Sting. He had a Stinger splash and a Scorpion death trap. He was moving slow, but he did look pretty decent. So 
Credit to Sting there. They finally gave us something to sink our teeth into after eight weeks or however many weeks of absolute garbage with this storyline. I loved the body bag stuff with Hook. That's so smart to bring it back. They never really explained what happened to Darby Allen when he got dragged off in a body bag. Like, did he get hurt? Was he kidnapped? Was he bleeding? Uh, was he in the hospital? Like, they just kind of drove off with Darby Allen and then forgot that it ever happened. So that was strange if I'm going back to criticize a couple weeks ago, but this was good. Uh, credit where it's due. I was entertained. Sting did the most he has so far in AEW, not even from a physical perspective, but just from an excitement perspective. So I like this. I think you guys, one of you, I forgot who it was, wanted me to give credit to them last week for improving when I disagreed and I thought last week still sucked. The credit comes this week. Improved. Sting Darby Allen, Brian Cage, Ricky Starks. I am looking forward to the match. I do think it's going to be a damn good match at Revolution. But the buildup, you guys have to admit, even the most ardent AEW fans, up until this week, it's been largely shit. Even if you don't think every week was bad, most weeks were really bad. We'll keep going here. Miro, Kip Sabian, and Penelope were interviewed by Tony Schiavone. Miro popped me by calling OC a walking Xanax. I thought that was a really damn good line. He tried to convince Charles to return as his butler. Shivani got delivered a school note challenging Miro and Kip Sabian to a tag team match at Revolution. And there was no answer, I think, in the moment, but presumably that's going to happen. I'm just ready for this feud to be over. If it takes a Revolution match for that to be the case, fine. Just all of these guys need to move on and do different things. Miro needs to move on as a single. I know that probably won't happen, but I just, I don't want them interacting anymore. Let's get these guys apart. Let's get them doing different stuff. I'd love to see Miro challenge Darby Allen for the TNT title. That's where he should be going next. Jake Hager defeated Brandon Cutler in a singles match. Hager won in three minutes with a running clothesline. Totally worthless match. Inner circle, Sands, Chris Jericho, and MJF attacked afterward, and the Young Bucks made the save. Jericho and MJF then declined a challenge and appeared on the big video screen with Papa Buck kneeling with his face covered in the fakest blood that I've ever seen, I think, in wrestling. They threw him into the back of a trailer with the Jackson's faces on it, one for each of them, and then drove off as Matt chased them. Matt was basically like lightly jogging after guys who just absolutely brutalized his father. So this whole thing was a mess. It was meant to be brutal, but it was so fake and so super corny. We got to do it here. Market zero. Absolutely market zero. I do think the match between these four will be very good at Revolution, but this, this was shit. This was not good. Hangman Page uh, faced Isaiah Cassidy. Page destroyed Cassidy until Matt Hardy interfered and got ejected from ringside. Page caught Cassidy midair for a Death Valley driver. It looked like Page was legit spiked on his head on a Poison Rana. It was really, really close. Page caught Cassidy trying a Springboard Destroyer and hit Deadeye for the win. Not only was this a fun match, I love when guys win with signature moves instead of finishers. Hardy was really angry after, so he threw a Dark Order member off the stage into the timekeeper's table. That was unnecessary. kind of cooled down the finish to me, but the wrestling between Hangman Page and Isaiah Cassidy was pretty good. And Cassidy definitely proved that he can hang as a single. You know, I think he's better than the tag team, obviously, but this was totally fine. There was a video package with Excalibur and Jim Ross actually trying to build the Cody Rhodes versus Shaq tag team match with the women next week. It was almost insulting considering how bad this entire thing's been. I can't believe it's the go-home show for that match and they didn't have Shaq or Cody on. 
I mean, what sense does that make in any way? They didn't have Jade cut a promo. They didn't have Velvet Sky in a match to show her ability. They did absolutely nothing other than a really bad video package to build to this match. Maybe they're just giving up on it because they know it sucks. I don't know, but man, this was not good. Uh, Britt Baker and Nyla Rose is the final match to discuss. This was, I think it was a semifinal or a quarterfinal, quarterfinal for the AEW Women's Eliminator Tournament. The women were basically back to their standard spot with a double commercial break, but this match did get plenty of time, unlike some of the other ones we've talked about before. Uh, Baker put Rose into a turnbuckle she exposed earlier and worked really hard to get her in the lockjaw, but failed. Baker hit two thrust kicks and a crucifix bomb for a two and again struggled with the lockjaw. Rose punched her in the face and hit the beast bomb, but didn't cover immediately. So Baker kicked out at 2.5. Rose then hit a second beast bomb for the win. This was a tough match to critique because I really like the effort and the story and some of the individual moves, but none of it was fluid at all. It was very rigid and felt like it was a struggle for both of the women to get through the paces of the match, if that makes sense. I saw some people were giving it very high praise but compared to last week's match, it's, it doesn't even come close in terms of match quality. It just it, It's tough. I think Baker and Nyla on their own are each individually a bit rigid and putting them together, that's obviously what you're going to get. When you get Nyla against Hikaru Shida or a Rio and then Baker against a Thunder Rosa, that secondary person kind of makes up for some of those flaws and, and helps the match be more fluid and bendy, but instead it was very rough and rigid. And that just kind of took me out of the entire thing. I was like, okay, what's the next move? Let's set up. Okay, you're setting up for it. Here we go. And I just thought it was a little rough. That's unfortunate. They're putting the Thunder Rosa against Rio. Oh, I should also say Britt Baker should have won this match, but that's beside the point. They're going to be putting the Thunder Rosa against Rio match that everyone wants to see and would have been a reason to tune into AEW Dynamite next week, or this week. They could have just done two women's matches this week on TV, considering there were a lot of matches that didn't need to happen at all. But instead of doing that and giving us two women's matches, they're putting it on a Bleacher Report special this Sunday, instead of just giving it to us on TV. I think that's incredibly frustrating. I do want to see this match, but I don't know that I'm going to stop on my Sunday to tune in just to watch this. The tournament, this entire women's eliminator tournament, it's another example of failed execution of the women's division, and it is 100% the fault of AEW booking. Half of the women's eliminator matches on the American side, which easily could have been and should have been on TV, were not on TV. The Japanese side, I understand that they weren't on TV. They're in Japan. They're taped in a different venue. It makes sense. I personally would have taken two and a half to three minutes on Dynamite each week to recap the action. I know they kind of did that anyway, but they didn't really give you full highlights to tell you who all these women are. They just kind of showed like one move a finisher and here's the winner. So all these things they could have done to make this feel like, okay, we're gonna cement our foot in women's wrestling and this Eliminator tournament's gonna be the start and we're gonna move forward. They did the opposite. They kind of just treated it like everything else they've done. So I was personally disappointed by that as a fan of women's wrestling. But that said, the match last week, exceptional. This week, Baker and Nyla Rose, I had my problems with it, but it was very well wrestled in terms of move set and storytelling and the effort that both women put in. So they deserve a lot of credit there. And AEW gave it plenty of time. So there are some positives, but they just need to do better. And I think you guys know that by now. And lastly, Jurassic Express and FTR 
cut taped promos against one another. Marco Stunt said shit. Uh, they talked about Tully Blanchard wrestling in the six-man tag team match. They're going to have... Tully is 67 years old, by the way. So I'm glad he's healthy enough to be cleared. And I anticipate he will do very little. But I really just would have rather seen Lucha Express against FTR without Marco and Tully. I don't know why we couldn't have just done that for like a number one contendership or something. That would have been the direction that I would go. So that's really it from AEW and very similar to NXT this week. I thought both shows had some really solid storytelling, some really good wrestling, but from a logic standpoint, from a booking standpoint, both of them and AEW is certainly included here, fell short. Uh, They were not spectacular or great shows. They were both just good wrestling on Wednesday night. We've had some Wednesdays already in 2021 where you get uh, done with these four hours. For me, it's three and a half hours because I tape one and I DVR it. Where I'm like, man, if I smoke cigarettes, I could go for a cigarette right now. Like that's how good the action is. Usually I just go with a beer instead. But this week probably wasn't one of those, but it definitely was a scene setter. So next week, the go-home show for AEW Revolution, that's going to be key. That's going to be something that I definitely have my eye on, and I do expect them to go absolutely crazy. I do expect them to end the show. I'm going to call my shot here with a big, exciting brawl where a whole bunch of people get involved and there's chaos, because that's basically what AEW always does on its go-home shows. Not that there's anything wrong with that. That was a staple of Nitro and Raw is War during the Attitude Era that period of time. You would always end with a chaotic finish to your go-home show ahead of the pay-per-view. So what's going to happen as far as the Getting Over Wrestling podcast goes? We will be back on Tuesday with a WWE episode. I am hoping to have an interview on that show, but I don't know if it's going to come through, so we will see. We'll then be back on Thursday with an AEW Revolution Ultimate Preview along with recaps of extraneous stuff that happens on Dynamite. I don't expect there to be much. And all of NXT from next week. And then we will come back Sunday, immediately after AEW Revolution is off the air with an instant analysis podcast. You guys love those. They're our most listened to episode. And I greatly appreciate that you guys tune in and share those and get people excited about the instant analysis. Please continue doing that. Please continue doing that with all of our episodes. Word of mouth is so damn important. Don't forget to head on over to Apple Podcasts to drop a five-star rating and review. Tell people that you love this show. Let them see it with words, with those five stars. You know it's all about the five. Every review, every rating helps bump us up in Apple's podcast rankings. Every time you share the show with someone and they listen to it, the more listeners we get, that bumps us up as well. All of this stuff helps. Do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for show releases so you can tweet and DM us questions so you can participate in polls. Hey, maybe we'll do some giveaways. Maybe we'll do some cool stuff to get more Twitter followers. That would be fantastic. And you can also follow the Silver King if you search me personally at Silverstein Adam on Twitter. That's it. That's the show. The Silver King's a little hoarse. You know, the Macho Man Randy Savage is always hoarse. So we're going to take a little bit of a break from giving you the show close. I'll just leave you with three final words. Bye for now.